Hear me, Odin. We come before you with the most legendary of all podcasts spun by the Norns of Fate, the Pod People. I am Matisse Van Rossum, all father of the pods. <laughs> I'm Hagar the Horrible. Oh, wait, no, 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 I'm Ben Sheets. Hello, I'm Val Cleveland Mosier. Oh, okay, that's pretty good. Yeah, thank you. Well done. Thank you. Nice recovery. Thank you. Cheers. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know what my name was going to be before the podcast, and right at the last second, I was like, "Oh, Val Cleveland, we'll do that." Val Cleveland. Yeah. Well, welcome back after your uh, brief absence. Yes, it's good to be back. I'm back from PAX East in Boston. It was an absolutely lovely time. It was great, and I didn't get COVID. Which hey, is rad. I was yeah, at a whole convention full of people. Plus. Played it safe and uh, came out good. While you were in Boston, Ben and I did a little splish splashing around with Jaws. Paddling too. around with Jaws too. How was it? Okay. Very okay. I guess mid, I can just listen mid. to the, you, the you podcast. You can go back and listen to the episode. Yeah, much the like our dear viewers. of mid. The de- yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but this week we're back to talk about our uh, one of our most highly anticipated movies of the year. Yes, yes, yes. Robert Eggers is back with his Viking epic masterpiece, The Northmen. You know, not really a horror movie, but Robert Eggers has previous to this done only horror movies. We've talked about him a lot on the podcast, so I think this movie is absolutely worth talking about, even though it's uh, it's not really a horror movie. It's, it's hyper-violent and rife with dark themes. We've talked about this sort of thing before in the past. Like, whether or not it's a horror movie, I definitely think it's a pod movie. Yeah, it has the brutality of a horror movie. Yeah. We can say that much definitively. For sure, for sure. It's quite gory at times. Mm-hmm. Um, very brutal. But, um, yeah, well, we've we've talked about this movie a bit in the lead-up to it coming out, but uh, I, this is really a surprising uh, film that, that actually was able to get made in the first place. Robert yeah. Eggers going from a budget of, like, generally between 5 and $10 million for his past films up to a budget of uh, over $70 million for this one. Yeah. yeah. Would you mind if I briefly described the film? Sure. Go for it. I've got a pretty, uh, I think, a pretty uh, nuanced explanation of the movie. Um, I think oh, from, by all means. From, from my perspective, I think the, the film is largely two hours of... Ooh, ooh, yeah, ah, ooh, 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 for about two hours or so, I would say. And hurdy-gurdy. Yeah. And hurdy-gurdy. And, uh, and it fucking rocked. It fucking ruled. Dudes rock. Vikings rock. This is fucking a, awesome. This is a dudes rock movie. It is. Yeah. Sure. This, yeah. this one, this one, this is for the boys. This one's for the boys. <laughs> and of course, you know, saying that, I, I think that um, there's a lot to be said about the uh, Robert Eggers' uh, penchant for historical accuracy. Yes. And um, he is the, I think, undisputed king of the period yeah. piece right now. Yes. I will say it's a bit of an, uh, a strange sort of anachronism sort of novelty that he got such a big budget you know nowadays because we have seen like the the large budget non-marvel non-star wars non-cinematic universe movies kind of die in the Mm. last couple decades so to see like an art house director get this big a budget is something we haven't really seen 
much of since like the 90s i would say unfortunately something that we may not see again (laughs) we can talk more about that later yeah uh... um well that's that's what makes it particularly interesting because this is probably robert eggers last big budget movie yeah Um, for a while at least yeah but The fact that it got made in the first place is awesome, and I'm so glad that it exists. Yeah, whatever yeah. whatever the ratings and all that may be, we enjoyed the shit out of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that's a surprise to any of us. Let's yeah. let's kind of no. talk about the approach here, right? Because since it's a big budget movie, they decided to take a very streamlined approach to the narrative. Uh, more so than something like The Lighthouse or The Witch, and really simplified it. Essentially, it's yep. the story of Amleth, which is the original story that uh, Hamlet was based off mm-hmm. of. And so it tells this very straightforward story of revenge, you know, a son seeking vengeance for his his father that is killed by his uncle, yep. um, and his mother is taken by the uncle. Uncle comes in, kills the king, steals the queen and the kingdom. Young prince must flee into exile to avoid death. Years later, comes back seeking vengeance. Seeking vengeance. And, of course, you know, this story has been told a million times, and we've seen that story plenty. Yeah. Especially um, in Conan the Barbarian. And I will say, like, oh. the uh, the story beats are pretty predictable. Yep. But I I think the area which this film shines is much like Robert Eggers' other you know films. It's in the detail of the environment and the historical accuracy Dialogue. and things like that. And the yeah the yeah the detail yeah, yeah the and the atmosphere. It's a it really elevates the simple story to something much more. Yeah, I and and you mentioned the dialogue, Cleve, and I think that this is somewhat of a departure from Egger's typical style of dialogue, um, because this is sort of an an epic and spans like a long period of time um, and has more characters. I think the the dialogue is largely more utilitarian than anything else. Mm-hmm. It mostly serves. Uh, for driving the plot forward more than anything else. Yeah, much of this tale is told pictorially, but whereas stuff like there are a few moments I want to count up. Of course, yeah, point. there there are a couple of like big uh, highlights, uh, especially in terms of monologues. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, whereas which Eggers has always excelled at. Whereas something with like like the witch or the lighthouse, which are more small scale stories, smaller cast. Usually, you know, centered around a couple of people or a family One location. Uh, going crazy in a single location. You know, there is there's more time for like character moments in the dialogue. And this is kind of just like, OK, here's where you need to go now to get the thing so you can wreak vengeance on your nasty uncle. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's not to say that, like, the film is sparse, like it's especially visually but just in like the detail of like everything it's so rich ben and i saw it twice Mm -hmm. um we saw it the week it came out while you were in pax and then the three of us went to see it again a couple nights ago um and man i'm so glad i have i've had an opportunity to see this movie twice before we talk about on the podcast Mm because i feel like i got even more from it on the second yeah i believe there's just there's 
it's long and there's just so much detail packed in there. There's so much to take in. Oh, yes. So let's start by talking a little bit about performances. You know, Skarsgård is obviously the standout in the lead. Absolutely jacked in this movie. Jesus Christ. Abs on abs on abs on abs on abs. Delts above his neckline, just yeah, completely wasn't when he shredded. That he was eating like 5,000 calories a day or something it was, like that. Yeah, for, I, I, during... I, saw, I saw just like a YouTube thumbnail from his nutritionist saying like he ate five meals a day. And I was thinking, like, damn, I could eat five meals a day, but I don't think I'd look like that. Like, yeah. uh, like, but obviously, like the it's it's the workout regimen, which I can only imagine. Like, as soon as they called cut on this movie, like Alexander Skarsgård was like, finally, I can like lie down for the first time in like six months. I can't even imagine what that regimen has got to look like. You know, like to to stay in shape like that, it's got to be it, uh, it pays off deeply <laughs> it pays painful off for this movie, though. and excruciating and probably really boring. Also, like to keep your body in the, like that level of. It's the kind of it's the kind of thing shape. where when you're working on the production of the film when you're not when you're not filming or sleeping you're exercising. Yep. Yeah. Nonstop. And I Non-stop. will say, you know, from I I watched a couple interviews with Robert Eggers after seeing it the first time. And one of the things he said is uh, Skarsgård approached him about wanting to make a Viking movie. And originally, Robert Eggers wasn't really interested in doing a Viking movie, you know, because of kind of the white nationalist stuff with Viking culture, which we can get into a little bit more. To to Um, appropriate Viking symbols and shit like that. But because this was such almost sort of a passion project for Skarsgård. He helped get some of the other actors on board and, you know, him getting jacked was definitely motivated by yeah. this being a movie he wanted to make specifically. Which is pretty dope. Yeah. That's cool. That is cool. And, and I mean, man, I, I think he does a great job. Like, he's he's fucking, Phenomenal. He's fucking in it to win it. He's very good. His performance is, is excellent. He looks great. The physique is uh chef's kiss yeah right on those pecs yeah (laughs) those cum gutters man i gotta tell you he's out here yeah i hate that term but spends a lot of the spends a lot of the movie naked too so yes he does if that's that's your thing there's plenty of eye candy in this movie oh yeah if you're uh Uh, if you're a top gun fan you're gonna you're gonna (laughs) like this movie (laughs) dudes rock dudes rock um yeah so we get a great performance from him. We get a couple of Eggers regulars in Willem Reggers, Dafoe. Regulars? Reggers. Reg- Egg- oh. <laughs> no, it's not. It didn't work. I tried. I Willem tried. Dafoe and Anya Taylor-Joy both show up. Uh, we even get a... We, excellent performances. We even get a cameo from the dad and the witch. Yeah. As Ralph Ineson. Uh, Ralph Ineson is the, the, yeah. the botsman, the botsman. And... and uh, uh, Kate Dickey, the the mother in The Witch, is one of the slaves oh, on yeah. the farm. There's a ton of like really great actors in this. In fact, one of my only like minor complaints about the movie is that uh, a, a few of them don't get enough screen time. Yeah. Yes, especially Willem Dafoe. He gives such a great performance as the mm-hmm. jester in this movie that I wanted to see more, more. of that. I just want a whole movie of that. Yeah. yeah. yeah that was not great. enough Willem Dafoe, not enough Ralph Ineson, not enough Bjork, frankly. I will say, that's yeah. a key player that we didn't mention. Bjork makes her first cinematic appearance in like 20 years. Since Dancer in the, the Dark. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is 
awesome. She mm-hmm. gets a really fantastic performance. Yeah, it's I essentially mean, just one monologue, but yeah, it's, two, she's in two minutes of the movie. She's yeah. so cool. I love, I love her makeup. It's just incredible and costuming. Like the the way like her her face is lit, where it's like her face is largely has like like white makeup over it, and then like across the eyes, it's dark. And then hanging up from her headdress are like three shells, and they kind of like replace where the eyes would be as these like weird beady kind of alien mm-hmm. shapes. It's so fucking spooky to look at. I loved her costuming. Yeah, essentially Bjork makes a cameo as herself. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Totally. The, the credits really should have said Bjork as herself. <laughs> Damn. You're so right. Uh yeah, like is this like weird Russian she's the, witch. She's the perfect casting. Yeah. Icelandic witch. No, no, no. That's uh, No, that's that's when they're in the land of the Rus. Rus. Yeah, in the Rus. That's so, that's Russia. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, Gotcha. Well, I was mostly just saying Bjork is Icelandic and, Dick, and yeah. she's playing herself. Yeah, that's fair. That is fair. <laughs> but yeah, in this, uh, that's yeah, that's when he they, he goes to the land of uh, Russ, which I feel like in the context of this movie probably would have been Finland. Yeah, yeah, he probably uh, didn't go that far, but because I mean, Finland used to be part of yeah that part of Russia mm. um, or what was considered Russia back then. What do y'all think of uh, Nicole Kidman? In this movie, I think she gave a fantastic performance. I think Man, she did. I gotta say, the AMC Nicole Kidman pre-roll really hit different when she's in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, heartbreak does feel good in a place like this. Well, they uh, they gave us plenty of pre-roll. Five of them. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, no, I thought Nicole Kidman's fantastic in this. She has probably the she has probably like the monologue of the film. Yes, yeah. I will say that especially in the latter half that it didn't take me out of the movie or anything else like that. But Nicole Kidman uh, in the past few years has had a lot of Botox and it did, it did sort of break some of the naturalism for me being like, like, you know, like all of her, uh, she's the Botoxiness of her face and is what is otherwise like a pretty like, perfectly tailored historical environment it's like you know uh kind of interesting but she did a phenomenal job i wouldn't i wouldn't like i I don't think that's enough for a recast or anything else like that like i wouldn't i wouldn't change anything about it but i do i do think it's worth commenting on a little bit being like like, she's just had a lot of work done and it uh you know it's kind of hey who knows you don't know what kind of uh, herbs and poultices they were rubbing on their skin to keep themselves looking young back in those man i gotta say nicole kidman still a dime i don't care about oh sure whether she had botox or not like and the thing is with this movie like she is still expressive, even though her face doesn't move quite as much as it might have in the past. <laughs> I'll just put it that way. Yeah, um, I think she gives a phenomenal performance. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a bad performance in this whole movie. No, like, fuck no, not at all. Ethan, Ethan Hawke. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well done. Wow, nice. Um, yeah, somebody who else we haven't mentioned who's great in this. I loved the psychedelic coming of age sequence yes uh, with ethan hawk and the kid and william defoe yeah let's talk about that a little bit young man so the 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 film starts with uh ethan hawk returning uh to his his little kingdom 
from war. Uh, it's all very Beowulfy. Yes, mm-hmm. it's it's sweet. Um, but he comes back and he has been wounded, and it kind of has him thinking, like, you know, I need to make sure that Amleth is ready to be my successor in case, you know, next time I don't come back. So, uh, you know, I'm going to take him to do this uh, this sort of coming of age ritual that I did with my father and he did with his father before him, where they go into the temple, go down underground. Uh, you know, drink some psychedelic potion, the mead of knowledge, and pretend to be wolves, yeah. pretend to be animals. Go on down, sip some of that seaweed water, is it trippy seaweed water, and uh, <laughs> howl a little bit. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I like uh, the the air tree shots. I absolutely <laughs> Sorry, I'm gonna, love... I'm going to be making accidental Elden Ring well, <laughs> I will say, I will say after, after we watched it the first time, I Aired turned to Tease and I was like, this is kind of like Robert Eggers's Elden Ring, right? Like it's going from like Egden Ring, a, a small scale, <laughs> smaller scale type of thing to a very large, gigantic thing. Much larger scale. And yeah. it nails it. You know, much like Elden Ring does. Sticks to land it. Yeah, we've um, all got Elden Ring on the brain still. Yeah, so get, get, just, y'all just get ready. There's going to be more references But I will to come. say, in that psychedelic sequence, I absolutely love how uh, Willem Dafoe is shot. Like, he is shot where the light is coming from under him almost. And it's almost like an otherworldly look to his face while he gives this kind of wide-eyed kind of... Speech about Uh, shedding your skin and becoming a wolf. And it's cool because up until that point, we only see him like wearing this like jester, like weird kind of bondagey looking mask um, to to indicate that he's the fool. Yes. And uh, in that sequence, it starts with him wearing it and it kind of cuts back and forth. And it, it gave me the vibe that like almost like the kid is like seeing through the mask. Even something as small as that. We don't know what exactly we're perceiving and how much time has passed, which was very cool. And yeah, just that whole talk about like shedding your skin and the all the all the berserker stuff. Yeah, you know, was really neat. Just excellent sequence. And one thing that's kind of a departure from Eggers's other stuff is, you know, Eggers in the past has been very focused on practical effects, where this movie has some CG, quite a bit of CG. Yeah, really. I wanted to ask you guys, what do you think of the CG in this movie? I loved it. I thought it was it was almost exclusively used for enhancing the psychedelic magical realism moments. Yes. Like, it was, whenever the CG was used, it was used for fantasy. Like, it was used for visions of fantasy, I should say. It's extremely, I thought it was extremely tasteful mm -hmm. and high quality as well. Any time outside of that, if or when it was being used, like possibly for digital mats or, you know, whatever else. Because, uh, you, you know, like in some of those shots of like the mountains in the background, like they were having to mask out the trailers or whatever else. Like that just comes with the territory. But I certainly never noticed it. Yeah. Or, or, or there's there never a time where I saw a castle in the distance and didn't think that that castle just wasn't fucking there. Yeah, um, absolutely you know, or series not of buildings. immersion breaking at all. No, no. It's, it's all um, you can you can touch. Like apart from those visions, you can reach out and touch most of this film. Well, and that's that's the I think the important thing is that like you mentioned the cg is really meant to um enhance Mm -hmm. moments of magical realism where amleth is having visions um or something so it's it's not heavy it's not heavy-handed it's brief and you know that 
it's not supposed to be literal. Yes. The scene in the the cave with Ethan Hawke and, and Amleth ends with, you know, Ethan Hawke undoing his bandages and, like, forcing Amleth to, like, put his fingers, like, in his wound. And he says something like, Behold, in our blood, the tree of kings. And it, like sort of goes into his chest and you see his heart beating and then it like branches up into this massive tree from which like the bodies of like their entire line and ancestors are like hanging up to the top where you see Ethan Hawke and then it goes above him and then you know like Emleth is the top of the tree it's fucking awesome it's so it's cool. So cool lineage is a really big theme of this film I was about to say yeah that's a huge theme of this film and it's even and- reference later with kind of a tapestry yes in the in the the house mm-hmm. where Fjolnir and and Nicole Kidman are yeah there's the tapestry with the tree I mean that's also you know just kind of big in in Norse mythology is Yggdrasil the tree of knowledge would you call it a tapis tree tree mm. Ooh. I would yeah I would I want to put a footnote on that uh, and mention that, you know, for, for as much as we talk about this being a dude's rock film and, you know, it is, it is very, uh, you know, gamer male fantasy or whatever you want to put it. Um, I think one of the things I really like about this film is how it highlights it. Okay. So it's really hard to do this, I think. And I think this film does a phenomenal job of it, of showing like how, I hate to use this word. I don't have a better word for it. Like, and I feel kind of cringy, like using the word, but like it does show like the, like the endemic, like patriarchy and toxic masculinity of that time where there wasn't functioning plumbing, you know, like, and it's like, well, yeah, that's how that society was. And it doesn't shy away from it. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't, glorify it to me that's important and that's it, it, it's really important that's important because and it's hard to do that there's there's a lot of and we'll talk more about this as we go but there's a lot of uh discourse around this movie already as there always has to be for movies like this yeah. um but you know a part of it hinges on the the uh sort of uh, toxic masculinity and chauvinism and stuff like that and I don't understand how you can watch this movie and think that it's like glorifying the way that these people are any yeah, more, I, like any more than this movie glorifies slavery. Well, that's the thing. Like, yeah, exactly. Right. You look like, at something like Assassin's Creed Valhalla, where it's just kind of a cosplay, you know, cosplay, yeah. you know yeah. reskinned version of something where it's really glossing over kind Vikings of the negative were woke, actually. aspects. Yeah. <laughs> where you look at something like this and they don't shy away from the raping and pillaging that are done mm-hmm. you and know. slavery. Because like that's that's something that's really important to know. Violence. Like if like, you if you were to like go on YouTube right now, like this is something I've done a lot. Because I I, I I went on a big binge of like Viking culture and like learning about like uh, that that era of history, um, especially because like so, so little is known about it. Um, after playing Hellblade, like send you a sacrifice after like, January sixth. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, yeah, no bad timing, but uh, like um, 
Yeah, so for very different reasons, I, <laughs> I, I went in. And also, like, you know, I, I've got a lot of that ancestry as well. And that's that's whatever. I'm not, like, super tethered to it. I grew up in South Alabama. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's not. Yeah. But but I, I, I do still find it fascinating and very cool. And the aesthetic is really neat. And so I started, like, you know, watching, like, videos and, like, lectures on it. And, like, one of the first things that's going to come up for you is, guess what? The Vikings had a lot of slaves. Like, yeah. you're going to have to, like, you're, you need to you need to face that shit. And just like recognize that that's a huge factor of it. Really, most tribal cultures in the world. Yeah, no shit. Like a thousand years ago did have slaves. Yeah. And, and like there are many facets of slavery and many cultures of it, too. And it, it, it varies in what that means. Um, all bad. <laughs> no shit. Yes. Like all bad. But like it's but um, this film doesn't try to say that slavery wasn't. Fuck bad no, either. it doesn't. Just like, these like people had slaves. Yeah. It's just the and, reality of it. Of course. And I think that like this film tr- does some other things where it, it it allows to have like all perspectives shown. And like you have that outside looking in and inside looking out that goes for the like the feminist aspects as well. Like you see how like bo- both women and men are treated in this film from both sides. And like and of course, like I think that's all that any period film should do to do it right. Clearly, these things are wrong and bad, but we can see in what capacities because it, it it's, it's human history, you know, like and that's that's important to note. Uh, and and I see, mean, I, I appreciated a lot of that. The the story of this film hinges on a sl- uh, a slave revolt. Yeah. You know, like it's not advocating for slavery and mm. the the strength of slavery. Like the story in the background, there is a slave revolt. Well, not around. even in the background. I mean, leading up into the first part, we see Ethan Hawke, who is shown to be like he's supposed to be like the the good guy at that point. Like when he's coming back home from pillaging, he's Carton slaves. Yeah. yeah. And when uh, Skarsgård like leaves uh, in exile um, and joins the uh, the bear clan, they're snagging slaves, you know, like they're they're basically yeah. like, yeah, like uh, as um, and they're they're selling him as chattel. And that's the, he's our protagonist, you know? Yeah. And I, I don't I don't think there's really a, a hero in this movie. No, fuck. No, there's not like, you know, obviously there's Amleth, a protagonist, but Amleth it's not a hero is our protagonist. <laughs> but. Um, I don't feel like the film ever really tries to depict him as being like virtuous or anything. Like no. it just kind of largely it, the opposite. It just is like this is a this is a film where there aren't really any good guys. Well, I I will say like I guess minor spoilers. The story has been told plenty of times, but if you've read Hamlet. You know, in high school, yeah. You know what uh, when Nicole Kidman reveals that she was a slave, mm-hmm. that kind of complicates things in a in a big way and shows that, like you said, there's no real heroes in this. Yeah. It's much more morally complicated and gray than that. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's a big uh, turning point in the film when uh, a adult Amleth reveals himself to his mother and is like, "Hey, I'm here to kill Fjolnir and free you and avenge father." And she's like, father. and she's like, like, no, you stupid little piece of shit. Like, I'm the one who asked your uncle to kill your father because I hated your father. He was a fucking he was a fucking asshole, you and, know. Then there's a moment where he says, like, no, but you were screaming when he he took you away. And she says, no, like, no I, I was, was laughing. laughing. You guys had seen it a second time. Did it sound like she was laughing? 
at the beginning to you? No, no it sounded it like no. Okay, I wanted to ask about so that. So there's, there's, there's that. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. There's that ambiguity okay. of whether it's like Stockholm syndrome or whether. Right. We don't know. You that's know, right. but oh, she, that's awesome. she does, she does say that she asked Fjolnir to kill his brother because, you know, she was not, as she told Amleth as a boy, she was not uh, a noble woman from Brittany, but she was a slave. Who's Brittany? <laughs> I don't know, some bitch. (laughs) One thing that I noticed in that scene when she was taken is she is screaming, but in the background there are other people laughing. Yeah. Which adds some additional ambiguity to it, which is great. Yeah, and also, you know, Crossed wires and mixed signals, yeah. And, and, you know, there is... there's also an argument, you know, that because we are seeing the entire film through Amleth's eyes, all that matters is that he perceived it as her screaming. So that's how we saw it as well. Right. You know, because we see his visions. We see what he interprets everything as being mm-hmm. like there's I even noticed that uh, and we'll talk about this scene in a little bit. But when the berserkers are getting ready to raid the village that like as they're walking up, like there are it's just like wolf Actual and wolf bear sounds. sounds. Yeah. So well, you know, I think that I think that there's there's uh, that to take into consideration mm-hmm. as well, well. Is that like Amleth is potentially, probably, very highly probably an unreliable narrator. Yeah. Well, and the, what's cool is, and I think what's what's so neat about that is featuring an unreliable narrator as your protagonist in a historical film, especially about this culture is a really, really good idea because so much of the history around this culture is uncertain. You know, we're looking at like 400 AD, right? Like this is 100 AD. Yeah. So yeah. 10th 10th century. Um, So like uh, in in a culture that like, you know, did not, did not keep a lot of its writing. Uh, Most of what we know about this culture is from other cultures, which is which is why, like with uh, there, there are several like historic accounts of berserkers where like they describe them as like, yeah, they they were werewolves, dog. Like they, they, which I mean, if you're if you're uh, your fort is being taken by people, like it's a really good excuse, you know, if they're like actual werewolves and shit, you know. Yeah. So like like incorporating like the the audio there, you know, when they're just wearing bear pelts is a really clever way to kind of show like that blurred line of like ancestral and historic memory. Well, the, the story of Amleth itself is I was doing some reading on this a couple of nights ago. It's, widely attributed to being based on an old Icelandic poem, but no physical evidence of that original poem actually remains. The earliest, like, written story is from, like, Denmark in, like, 1200 something and they say like oh yeah this was an old Icelandic poem but it's like there's no physical evidence for that you know what I like too is it's a wonderful opportunity for even more amalgamation um one of my favorite little nods is he's from the wolf clan right like he has the wolf thing where he sheds his skin and becomes a wolf and then later on he joins the bear clan and he sheds his skin and does that and later on he's referred to as the bear wolf aka beowulf pretty dope right i did i was like oh yeah beowulf reference fuck yeah like that was really fun well yeah bjorn wolfen is the name that he takes for himself after he flees uh the bear wolf 
Yeah, because he can't. Uh, he, can't he can't use his uh, his given name. Um, so yeah, he is Bear Wolf when he is with uh, the the Berserkers. Just fucking awesome. Um, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about let's talk about that scene because it's even one, though one it, my favorite it, scene in the movie. it plays a relatively small part in the movie, it is one of the coolest things. I've I, seen. Amazingly, it's the shot. most immersive sequence. Also, yeah. um, uh, I do. I did really like that the head of the bear clan has horns mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, historically like Vikings, as far as we know, didn't have horned helmets. The only account of a Viking having a horned helmet was a, I believe, Arabic writer who like encountered Vikings and said one of them had horns. And like, I mean, I buy well, it. That was like also in that scene where they're becoming they're they're doing their berserker ceremony where they're becoming animals. That character is not wearing that horned helm later when they go into battle. So mm-hmm. it's a, I think it's a headdress. It's a ceremonial yeah. headdress. Well, and they would be, and because it's not convenient in battle. No, <laughs> but um, uh, it's not practical. But it looks cool. It looks fucking cool, and. And honestly, like, I don't know, like, between all of us, we're wearing very different clothing for the culture that we're in, right? Like, I don't, I don't think, I don't see it as an uncommon thing for, like, some people, like, to be like, yo, horns are fucking cool on my head. I'm aware of some. I'm gonna put some on my helmet. You know, like, you might get an occasional guy. So having, like, one guy with horns on his helmet was, yeah. was fun. And, like, mm-hmm. you know, because, you know, maybe. Who knows? Like, that's, that's the cool thing about, about it. It's, it, that, that part of history is really ambiguous. We can, you can get away with that. I absolutely love how the siege is shot yes uh you know we have the incredible incredible shot where you know they're sneaking up towards the village and they're spotted and someone from the the guard post throws a spear and uh scars guard catches it midair and throws it back. Yeah, he's just like it's really nice. So like, fucking cool. Pivot turn and like his form is perfect. And he just and he absolutely gores the guy. Like it's yeah. so good. And then like, oh shit, Vikings! Spear throw, he just calmly stands up, grabs it out of the air, turns on his heel, throws it at the guy, and just like <laughs> knocks him off the wall. Yeah, I cannot so even smooth. imagine like shooting that. Like Well, how, I mean like because obviously the, the thing, things were faked, obviously. Of course. But what things? Right, and so like, that's what I want to know. I want to yeah. know how that how that was shot because I can see a number of ways. But uh, yeah, and then afterwards, when he like he scales the wall while they're all being shot at and falling, uh, he scales the wall essentially one handed with an axe. Yep. Um. Uh. And or a hatchet, and uh, and then he gets to the top of the wall, kills a dude, and then leaps off the other side and kills via dismount another guy. Like he falls and takes a guy off of a horse. That is a insanely difficult stunt horses are hard to work with like that and like i can't even imagine again obviously some things were faked they they use their tricks but but uh man what tricks they're they're masked so well you know like i I, I couldn't tell you i mean they're yeah they they do some tricks and stuff for sure but like somebody whether it was scars guard or not somebody jumped off of that wall and pulled somebody from the top of a horse on their way down yeah like Mm. that in some capacity a really impressive practical feat that happened that happened (laughs) yeah but i mean then you know then it just goes through at, like as the berserkers rage through the village and then the rest of the soldiers the non-berserker soldiers come in to pick up the scraps and i mean eggers does lots of like 
single long single takes um i think the whole siege of the village is uh three shots three three long takes Um, i can't even imagine two two or three there's there's one obvious cut when he jumps from the wall onto the horse that's a hard cut yes there could be another cut when uh the camera passes uh uh, in front of, or the wall passes in front of the camera. They could have hidden a cut there. Yeah. Well, they had to. We had pivoted around beforehand, and like the- no, they 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 could have done that shot continuously because it comes up the wall. They could have handed the camera over to somebody who was standing on top of. The I thought wall. the camera went through. Like, no, I thought, I thought there was a removal. No, it goes up and then over, and it passes in front of like one of the battlements. So. Mm. They could have hidden a cut there. They may or may not have. Hard to say. Either um, way. Either way, yeah. Impressive. But then uh, Amleth, you know, going through the village and uh, killing other soldiers. I love the part where he, like, puts the guy up against the wall with his sword and then just sort of, like, walks along and slits his throat. Um, just an absolutely brutal sequence. Yeah. Like, uh, when the guy is, like, shooting arrows at him. And then coming at him with uh, an axe on a horse. And he dismounts that guy and, like, shoves his face into the mud. Well, and he ri- he rips his throat out with his teeth. Yeah. Like a fucking animal. Yeah, yeah. roadhouse yeah. ultimate. Because he, he, quote, is one. Yeah. Right? Like, I love, his perspective. I love how that scene ends with just, like, the shot of all the berserkers, like, crouched in front of like the house and they're all just like (sighs) just exhausted they're just like yeah they're they're like the adrenaline has worn off and they're just like dead yeah i will say the end of that whole scene is so bleak when they're rounding up all the the villagers and children and women and putting them into this thatched roof hut my favorite thing about that is it's instigated it's largely instigated by a series of like it would assume to be like the reinforcements you know from mm-hmm. the bear clan um to take over since the the, the berserkers are now tanks <laughs> yep. and sleepy uh but um like helming that group is a very very powerful woman <laughs> like i don't i don't know how else to describe it where and 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 she's the one who says i want only the strong ones yeah and and then leaves the shot and we never see her again and i i really loved that because Girl, girls get it done. girls get it done girls uh get it done. and like i i love that because um uh, maybe not for the reasons you'd expect, but but historically, uh, I think it was a year or so ago, like they, they did uh, an analysis on like a, a funeral site where uh, like a Viking warrior was was buried and it was a woman and she had all sorts of battle damage, like like axe wounds. They think that like uh, she died from like taking an axe wound to the head. Um, and it was very clear that like she was a warrior. Well, she like, was buried. The reason they assumed that it was male originally was because the body was buried with a shield and an axe and a sword so they're just like oh it was obviously a man right mm-hmm. yeah and so it's then like when they dating... did the actual forensic analysis they're like yeah. nah this is actually a woman yeah and it was like they had wounds that like had been like from years before they died so like they'd encountered like lots of battle wounds like to to bone and kept like fighting for several more years 
that's badass as fuck. And like, and frankly, I love it too because it it puts a lot of those like fucking right wingy like historical fuckers where it's like, oh well, it's not accurate because there are strong women. And it's like, yeah, yeah Bart, fuck you. Like there Bart were strong hate, women. Bart I would hate that. No, I know. And it's like, that. like yeah, all your take your fucking like like obviously the time was patriarchal. It was fucked or whatever. But like like hey, guess what, dog? There were strong women. There were like 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 warriors like who would go in and like and like you encounter that like if you're actually into history you encounter that shit like across the All board the time. and also um narratively it's it's i think really valuable to keep things gray you not keep things good for not to keep scars in like a positive light but to keep him in a gray light where yeah. like mm-hmm. in this culture that he is in like it's it's like a it's like a powerful woman who makes the call to like burn all of like the weak children. It's a small note, but it's cool. I mean, again, I think the entire film takes that perspective. Like Eggers is a history guy. He's very yeah. much about being as historically accurate as possible and presenting these stories as like aspects of our history and folklore. And it's like, yeah, I I mean, I don't know how you can view the movie as like glorifying or idealizing Skarsgård after we see this scene of like the, his brutality and killing people and being complicit in them, like putting all of the weak and elderly and children into a house and burning it down because they're not good slaves. Like, I, I don't know how you can watch this movie and be like, yeah, Robert Eggers is saying that all of this stuff is good. It's like, no, this is just this was just the reality of existence back then. Yeah. Like, this is just the way it was. I mean, fucking hell, like their very religion was based on the idea that if you don't die in battle, you die dishonorably and you go to hell. The only way to enter Valhalla is to die honorably in battle. Yep. Like, mm-hmm. so, of course, people who believe that and believe that their entire Afterlife, their eternal existence is dependent on dying in battle. Of course, they're going to be out raiding and fighting constantly, yeah. right? Because they don't want to run the risk mm-hmm. that they catch fucking dysentery and shit themselves to death and dishonorably. Of, yeah, and of course, know? like you know, even in that, they're going to be practicing like like their like eugenics, you know, totally. and like killing yeah. the killing the weak. Their whole society is based on you know war. So, yeah, like, no shit, they're going to be doing that. You know, much like it's the Spartans, like, it's like, much like the rest, you yeah, know? It's like, like, it's like people calling, it's like, I have as many problems as I have with his filmmaking. Like, it's like people calling Zack Snyder far right because at the beginning of 300, they throw a, a deformed baby off a cliff. Yeah, they did that shit. Yeah. yeah. It's like, that's, <laughs> it's not saying that it's good, but that's what people did. I, I want to <laughs> save a little bit of discussion on the discourse for at the end of the episode. Yeah, sure, because. Sure. There are some stupid takes out there that oh, we should yeah. just emphasize. There always are, yeah. I mean. um, but one thing I wanted to talk about is shortly after that scene and the fantastic Bjork scene, yep. we have the introduction Fantastic of- Bjorks and where to find them. God damn it. <laughs> uh, Fantastic we- Bjorks, the crimes of Grumblegrin. <laughs> uh, we have the great introduction of Skarsgård's sword. 
Yes. Um, the Night Blade. Yes. Yeah. And I Ooh. love the retelling of how it was created. Forged and, in the fires of Mount Doom. Yeah. Yes. Essentially. Yeah. Um, From the rarest iron. Yeah. That whole monologue uh, about like the way this, this thing was forged was very Tolkien-esque. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Um, I mean, he sees it as a, you know, as a vision. You know, yeah. It's forged yeah. by these, these mythical warsmiths in the fires of hell, you know. Yeah. And, and, and what comes of that that's really neat is like that we have to remember that Tolkien also was a big student of history and studied a a massive amount of like Norse mythology and other mythologies were worked into Lord of the Rings Mm -hmm. as well. I mean, if we just look at um, like the writers of Rohan, like that whole sequence is essentially like a a re a re canvassing of Beowulf um, and uh, like Hrothgar's hall and all of that, like the and them being like a horse culture, like that's all built around. You know, and a lot of the words in Elvish and whatnot are, are, are based in, you know, like that. So the same. Yeah, Tolkien was a nerd, just mm-hmm. like Eggers is a nerd. <laughs> just like Martin and Miyazaki are nerds, are nerds as well. Yeah. And like in Elden Ring, like they do the same thing. They they pull from those similar facets in a cool way. I'm glad you mentioned Miyazaki because the scene where he gets the sword from the very. Uh, from the uh, from the undead, undead king. Yeah, king is it feels like it's straight out of Dark Souls. Yeah, I, I straight up just like, yeah, I remember that fight, boss fight, you know. It's a, that's a yeah. fucking Souls fight. Yeah. Well, I I love I love it too because like after he fights that this this big uh, undead king in this barrow mound, um, you know, he cuts off his head and he, there's a nice little touch of him putting the head like between his legs, so like he's sniffing his own yeah. ass. But then like the camera pans over and it's just him. Him standing in front of the corpse and he like takes it's his the imagination it's his imagination it's like well it's it's that's that's what's so incredible about this movie what i love about this movie is that like from a very young age when he's taken to do this ritual with his father and imbibes some sort of psychedelic potion like all he's told about is his destiny what's mm-hmm. destined of him in that whole thing you know his father says like if i fall in battle you must avenge me and then immediately after that is killed by fjolnir yep. right so and that's when he has the vision of the tree so every thing from this point on is Amleth basically imagining his destiny. Yeah. You know? I will say this is a bit of a tangent, but after seeing that sequence where he's fighting the undead king, it just made me really, really fucking want to see a Dark Souls or Elden Ring movie directed by Robert Eggers. Yes. <laughs> because, like, both... Eggers and Miyazaki have such an eye for detail and atmosphere that, like, that would be fucking awesome. And obviously with this movie kind of bombing, I doubt it would ever happen. But, like... It seems like such a great match, right? There. Somebody Those... like Eggers would ha- would be the only one I would trust to to make any kind of like d- from soft adaptation. But you know, I don't know if Eggers is a video game guy. I think he's too much of a history nerd. Mm. I think I think he likes doing research too much to play video games. Yeah, I don't think no. he has the time for it. I mean, honestly, like his 
upcoming eventual Nosferatu. <sighs> Which has been shelved again. Yeah, if it's ever yeah. happened. If it ever happens. Yeah, but... I mean, if it ever happens, that's a Bloodborne-ass movie if I've ever heard of one. <laughs> big true, big true. Um, so, something that I want to talk about, because we haven't talked about it much yet. I want to talk about Fjolnir, Emless Uncle. Um, and I want to talk about one of my core theses on the film, which is... Fjolnir did almost nothing wrong. <laughs> I think big almost. Yeah, I, I won't. I won't say that Fjolnir did nothing wrong. Yeah, but I do think that Fjolnir is not nearly as much of a villain as Emleth believes believes him to be. Deeply gray. I don't think he deserves. I don't think he quite deserves the horrible vengeance that ha- that Emleth wreaks upon him. I don't think anyone does. Like so, that's the thing, right? Like so, yeah. we'll talk. We'll talk about Fjolnir first. Another great performance. He's played by Danish actor Clay's Bang, which is a great name. Hmm. Um, and uh, he, he gives another great performance. A banger. But, uh, yeah, he's a banger. Uh, so Has import- he been anything else that I've seen? He was I the only actor I didn't recognize. he's in Game of Thrones. Mm, but that maybe, might be wrong. Maybe, I don't know. If so, he's he's maybe a he's bit, a tertiary character. part, yeah. So things to know about his character. He looks like he would be. Yeah. Fjolnir is a uh it's it's mentioned that he is a bastard. He is Arvendil's brother, but uh not a legitimate heir to any sort of throne. He's a bastard brother. Um so while we don't necessarily see this, I feel like he was probably treated disdainfully for most of his life, probably by Arvendil as well, mm. um, who, you know, when Fjolnir is about to kill him, calls him uh, a half-breed and well, says that... Disdainfully. Oh! Um, <laughs> he, but he calls him a half-breed and says that no half-breed will ever, uh, will ever be able to hold the throne, like his kingdom will be taken from him, which does end up happening. That's something that Amleth learns years later when he hears of Fjolnir and he's like, oh, these slaves are being sent to Fjolnir in Iceland. And he's like, oh, what's Fjolnir doing in Iceland? He's supposed to be king of, you know, wherever Amleth comes from. It's like, oh yeah, somebody else came in and took that kingdom from him. So he ran off to this fucking like backcountry, like barren island. He's a sheep farmer now. Yes. Yeah. He is, I love he's that. No longer, he's no longer a king. He is a quote-unquote tribal chieftain, but he is the chieftain of like a farm. Yeah. So like he, so like Eveleth shows up and you know with the slaves being sent to Fjolnir and like yeah he still has slaves and servants and like a few warriors and whatnot, yeah. but like his kingdom is nothing it, at it, this point. It really is like the the historic equivalent of like uh, like a, an Instagram quote celebrity who has like five hundred followers. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> yeah. great because uh, when he gets the shipment of slaves, he turns away all but like three or four of them because he can't feed all of them. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. He's about to send them all away, and then Amleth, like, you know, does a show of strength, and like, okay, we'll keep him, because he's strong. He and then, boy. like, his son is like, oh, well, mom needs a couple for the kitchens, and he's like, okay, uh, we'll take these two. But he gets rid of the rest of them, because he doesn't have food for them, because the farm's not big enough. So his kingdom is nothing. He has no kingdom anymore, but at the same time, 
doesn't necessarily seem like he cares. You know, our introduction to well, him... Well, he doesn't show it. Our introduction to him at this later stage of his life, like, once he's in Iceland, is, like, him and his son, like, building something for their temple, and the son is like, this is slave work, why are we doing this? And Fjolnir is like... Like, well, you don't know whether by next Yuletide you'll be a king or a slave, so might as well show that you can be both. Mm -hmm. And also show your slaves that you're as strong as they are. So it's like, I feel like the way it's presented is that, like, Fjolnir is kind of at peace with his position in the world now, which leads me to believe that killing his brother was never so much about claiming his kingdom as it was about, like, maybe getting revenge on his asshole brother, but also being in love with Nicole Kidman and wanting to make her his wife. Yeah. yeah. Also, and this is getting into the, the deep nerd shit, because um, I did some more reading, and I noticed that another difference is that Arvindil and Amleth are worshippers of Odin, right? The All-Father, who is the Norse god of, mm -hmm. of war and knowledge and treachery and all of that shit, but One-Eye Crows, all that stuff. Yes. Fjolnir worships a different god. Fjolnir worships Freyr, who is the twin brother of Freya, and... He is a god of peace and pleasure and fertility and harvest. I do think that it's an interesting distinction that, like, Amleth and his father and their tribe are, you know, their patron deity is Odin, the god of war, whereas Fjolnir, his patron deity is a god of agriculture, of agriculture and pleasure. Pe and uh and which shows in their culture peace. you know they uh they they not only are uh take uh take of agriculture they also like have a have a small festival yeah well and the, their, well. Their, like, their, statue, their statue of Freyr has a big fucking throbbing erection it's Hell got yeah. a big cock so you know i i think that that's interesting that that's like fjolnir and his deity and his people who are and you know they do still like do human sacrifices and stuff and like they are warlike as the viking culture dictates but dictates I, <laughs> dictates <laughs> but that's another reason why I think it's like, well, you know, Emleth is following in his father's like warlike footsteps. Odin is is, you know, guiding his path in, in vengeance against a guy who's like, yeah, I got a farm. I'm just trying. I'm just hanging out, you know, so that's why I don't think I don't think Fjolnir's all that evil. Well, yeah. Well, let's cut cut to cut to him uh, also picking Anya Taylor Joy out of the the set of uh, because she's slaves yeah. because she's hot and blonde and uh, for clearly she has the hair of a Valkyrie. Yeah, clearly for himself and later him trying to uh, have his way with her very much so against her will and uh, her pulling a little bit of trickery on him by making him think that she's on the rag, which I thought was very clever. Is it trickery? I thought she just was on her period. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think it was trickery because she she does that several times. Like her whole theme of her character is that she's a witch. Um, in some Olga capacity, Olga of the Birch Forest. Yeah, Olga of the Birch Forest, a and Slavic the the first forest witch. She is introduced <laughs> to us uh, with her playing a trick. 
she comes out as like people are trying to take her little brother away. I think it's a little brother or like one of the children. Somebody, one of the children. And, and she's uh, carrying like a like either like a, a, a loaf, loaf of bread, bread or a yeah. pie or something. And um, beneath, and it's shown like she's kind of thrown to the side and the bread is also thrown to the side. And you see that underneath it, she was she carrying a knife. A knife. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on, like she does that with like saying that she's, you know, like her her moon is rising or whatever the fuck, you know, they would say back then. Like, uh, you know, like she's she's on the rag. She's she's having her period. And so, like, I mean, I don't think that necessarily has to be a trick. She does plenty of other tricksy stuff, but women do be having their periods. Of course, you know? of course. But I, um, uh, I, I don't think there's anything that suggests that that in moment is necessarily a trick. Well, but she does, plays a trick in that by, you know, taking her hand to the blood and putting it in his face. On his face, she marks him. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, she does do plenty of tricky stuff later, like she and Amleth fall in love and, you know, she helps him. She uses her her forest magic to put, um, you know, psychedelic mushrooms into the, the, stew. the stew when they think there's the dark spirit on the loose. Um you know that's haunting the farm so cool and so like all of the guards start like hallucinating and shit so i mean yeah she's she's definitely uh oh she also practices quite tricksy she also practices some trickery on alexander skarsgård's character as well um sorry i cannot i cannot for the life remember any of these nordic names but um uh amleth is like the easiest one because it's almost hamlet i know i know uh but even still she also practices some trickery on him by waiting, I guess, goodish trickery to reveal that they are, well, from the same tree, that they have the same lineage. Well, no, no, no she's pregnant. She's pregnant with his kids. She's continuing his lineage. Yeah, but they also, unless I read into that wrong, they they were implying that like they're in some capacity related. No. no, she's carrying his lineage because she has the, his seed. I okay. In her. That's that's why that's why he feels his blood in her, her. because she's pregnant like with their children. They're not related at all. He is Scandinavian, she is Slavic. See, they're, I thought my impression with that is that they were doing a thing where get ready for some mental gymnastics that they were uh that because she's blonde like, but she's from like the land of Russ. That like Slavs are blonde too. The, I know, I know. But also that like her mo- his mother was a slave as well, and so it's like they come from the same place or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but his mother and that was the impression I was a, His mother is a slave from Brittany, which is a region of France. Mm. Region of France. Oh so, well, never mind. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, no, well, I don't. I don't think they're related. But like, she does get pregnant with his children, and that's yeah. when he has the vision One way or the other. of the tree that then extends beyond him with two children, yeah. which I do think is cool because part of Bjork's prophecy is about a maiden king. Yeah, mm-hmm. and when so when he has that uh, when he has that vision of the tree, you know he sees two children, a boy and a girl, but the girl is the one who is crowned and carrying a sword. Just that was that was tight. Well, uh, yeah, apologies, I misread <laughs> the incest vibes, uh, but lucky for y'all, there still is some in this movie, which we can cut back to. Hooray! <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it wouldn't be a medieval period piece without incest. Yeah. 
You know, it really wouldn't, though. That's the thing. Uh, but uh, people be fucking their family back then. They just do, you know. Um, uh, it's, uh, I think, pretty pretty fundamental to the hero's journey. I guess. Uh, let's, you know, like, uh, hello, Star Wars. You know, the sequence I thought was was pretty powerful. I I kind of saw it coming from very early on in the film because it's it's foreshadowed with uh, the introduction of Amless. Well, first off, it's based on Hamlet. And right. like yeah. there are a lot of connotations in Hamlet, you know, where he's talking about like the incestuous sheets and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, and him kind of like, I, again, olden times can be hard to read. But like some of the ways like he describes like loving his mother, it's like, mm, you know, but uh, so there's already that going Oedipal in. Oedipal complexes are as old as Oedipus. Hey. <laughs> um, uh, and and so then you have that. Plus, uh, what is it? Um her introduction is him entering her chambers as she's being dressed. And yeah. she says, never enter my chambers unless I've given privilege permission or, permission yeah. or whatever, which is neat. Cause like that's also flashback to later on when he gets into their house the first time when they're at the farm um, and he sees his uncle and her like, and she's like, she's like combing, combing his hair. hair. Yeah. Which is, Cause that's also referenced because she says like, I, I, her son, she tries to comb her son's hair and he says like, I don't, I don't need that because it's he's like trying to be a little man. Yeah. And she says, I know. And she says, I know grown men who need their hair combed. And so we see her also combing yeah. the uncle's hair. I also think part of the reason why she didn't want Amleth entering her chambers while she's getting dressed is because she has the slave, slave, the slave mark. brand. Right. And yeah. we learned that like when he was little she tried she told him that like she was a nobleman or a noblewoman but then we learn later that she was a slave that arvindil decided to yeah. take as his queen and of course we see that pattern again with anya taylor joy's character which again is why i made that f- filial tie-in yeah. but um i uh, mean it's it we're, it's poetry it rhymes yeah. but uh but it's just one part <laughs> yeah, is rhyming right. yeah <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> but when he finally confronts his mother about it as we spoke about earlier you know she says that like no i was i was with him all along like this is Man, always that, part of my plan that i wanted monologue to kill him is, that monologue is fantastic with oh, harrowing yeah. harrowing is the and, word yeah and like, that's really the terrifying. thing too is like you wonder how much she like might be lying but like especially i think in her conviction and you know especially how after that when she's telling fjolnir that like no it's my fucking dastardly son amleth back from the dead you know it's not some spirit or something like i get the feeling that she's telling the truth like she hated she hated Ethan Hawke, yeah, and and she she did want Fjolnir to to kill well, him. It's neat too because we do get a scene not from Amleth's perspective at the very beginning where she is trying really hard to fuck Ethan Hawke. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. she's she's like, and I Ethan's like, seen... no, I, I can't risk it. I might die fucking you, and I need to die in battle. Sorry, babe. She's, yeah, she's like, <laughs> I haven't I haven't seen you in a season. Let's go to bed. And he's like, Nah, I gotta go run around on all fours with my son in a hole in the ground. <laughs> <laughs> And and my boy Willem Dafoe, I got. It's like it's like. Sa- no. so, sorry, babe. Priorities. Saturdays for the boys. Sorry, sorry, babe. I haven't seen you in a whole season, but we're not fucking tonight. I'm going to play in the ground with my boys. Yeah. <laughs> Dudes rock. Dudes, Dudes rock. rock. <laughs> um. Yeah. So uh, you know she um and then and then she she uh she she really she really pulls some evil shit and and then makes it out like and it it's interesting too because like you can also see like her doing this like survivalistically because it's yeah. like i mean fucking look at the guy like 
he's going to kill the whole village. He's, he's, he's the bear wolf. Yeah, he's the bear wolf. Like, he's a, he's a big, scary dude, and he's out for vengeance. So she, she also, like, I... I, you can see it almost from her perspective as like survivalistically making a play there. And she's like, yo, hey, but if you kill him and you get your revenge, does that mean that like I'm it's your like, queen I'm now? Your queen. Yeah, that's yeah. fucked up, man. That's fucked up. And, and she, uh, she does kiss him. Yeah, they, they make out. Yeah, it's a whole thing. He's conflicted. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, then he pushes her away and, she, and he's just like, yo, what the fuck? And he leaves, which I mean, talk about like total nightmare scenario. Like uh, that is. You know, which, which, of course, he, he regularly uses that term, like, like nightmare. And, yeah. you know, like, but it's their nightmare. It's their nightmare. It is. But is it really? No. Mm-hmm. no. Could it be? It's both. It's both. Um, um, well, I mean, yeah, that's a huge turning point for him because the mantra that he's been repeating for 20 years is I will avenge you father, I will save you mother, I will kill you Fjolnir. And then, and one of those three big tenants, I will save you mother, is like, oh shit, she doesn't need saving. This is what she wanted. Which this it, was, it was her idea. And like in storytelling, like, um, there's this really nice, like, kind of wheel that sort of breaks down, like, a lot of, like, your, your stand, you know, and again, like, conventions are broken all the time and they should be, sure. but, like, in that standard, a really key point is, like, bad things happen, hero has to leave home. Hero goes on a journey. Hero gets a magic sword. Hero comes back home. Or hero defeats the guy or whatever. Hero comes back home changed. They flip those around. And I really like that. So hero comes back home changed. And this is like that moment. And they use it for horror, which is really cool. Mm. Like, uh, you know, normally it's like, oh, well, you know, the hero comes back home and he's different and everything else, which is also true. But here it's like he comes back to and home is not the location, right? Like mm-hmm. home is his mother. Yeah. Essentially. And he comes back to find that, like, she doesn't want him. She doesn't want she him. She says in her monologue, she's like, I gave my blessing for you to be killed. Yep. So you couldn't take over the kingdom. Wow. And it's like, Spooky damn, shit. Mm-hmm. damn, mom, for real, for real, mom? for real. Yeah. And he still doesn't kill her there because he won't kill a woman. But then he does kill her later after she stabs him a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> um, we we talked a little bit about his sword. I just want to mention the the couple of times the hungry blade, the night blade that uh, the the witch uh, in the hills. Who I I think all of the witches and prophesizers in this movie are actually the same character. That's just my theory. Oh, um, in different forms. Just your game uh, theory. It's just my game theory. But you know, it, when he's telling him about the sword, he's like, "It can only the sword can only be drawn at night or at the gates of hell." Yeah. And uh, we do see that that is true a couple of times. Just can't. Uh, that, he, that the sword cannot be drawn during the daytime or as soon as the sun starts to rise. Even that first night when he gets it and he goes back and he's trying to find a place to hide it. And like Fjolnir is out with like the dog and like they almost catch him. It's like the rooster starts crowing and he tries to unsheathe the sword and he can't. Um, they they do a great little comedic gag later after he's been captured and they no like nos. hang him. They like hang him up in the shed and they're like beating him and the one of the guards like has his sword and like tries to unsheathe it and it's, can't. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's no nos. Our wonderful comic relief who uh, keeps coming back up. Yes, no nos. Which we we haven't mentioned yet, but uh, yeah, like when when Amleth is like running away, like he's the guard that as a child he's the guard that tries to grab him and Amleth like cuts his nose off to mm-hmm. escape. And the guard, in shame, says that he killed him, and he or he, he yeah. dropped him in the sea. Uh, you he know, sank to, like a stone. He sank like a stone, and uh, you know, so he can 
you know, like uh, not bear the shame of losing his nose to a child, which is yep. which is very cool. And uh, yeah, I love I love how he comes back up like regularly. And it's like, when is this guy going to fucking die? Because he like it takes a long time. Like Amleth like kills a lot of other people in the village before he but goes down. Kill him. Yeah. Until, it, until he does. Mm, until he does. And in the best way, by shoving his night blade through his his nostril his cavity. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, and I, I love it, too, like how little regard Amleth ever gives him. Like and, and the film yeah. as well, like like he's he's not treated as like a sub boss. He's not treated as like anything else. He's just the guy who cut his nose off when he was a kid. Yeah. And he's like almost, he's he's reduced to comic relief. And uh, yeah, I just I like that. Yeah, where he tries to draw the sword. I like that bit. And he just chucks it to the side. He's like yeah. and he just throws it in the corner, which, of course, conveniently leaves it there for Amleth to grab when the ravens right. chew through well, his uh his ropes and free him which again is like a really nice like repetition on that theme because like he he lets amleth essentially get away and survive out of laziness and guilt yeah and he does the same thing he's bad at his his job job. and he does the exact same (laughs) thing with the sword there so like it even though it's like a really dumb thing for a guard to do like it's like pre-established in that guard's character and it works really well for it yeah you know but you know what it's perfect because it, especially him like leaving the sword there is kind of like a deus ex machina which i mean i i don't know about you guys but when i was in school like hamlet was one of the big examples of like uses of deus ex machina when like our literature teacher was trying to teach us like about that <laughs> literary device is using examples in hamlet so i think that that's kind of fun that there's some of that in this movie too <laughs> yeah um while we're on the subject of Hamlet, um, when Amleth goes to the witch in the hills, in the cave, he has the the skull of Willem Dafoe, of Hamir, mm. and he has his, uh, he has in true Hamlet fashion, he has his alas, poor Yorick moment. Yes! Yeah. He even says, poor Hamir, because after uh, Fjolnir killed his father, he cut off, he cut out Hamir's eyes and tongue, tongue. And ears, but this old witch took his head and fashioned him new eyes and tongue. Which is super cool because it is also, in some capacity, a reference to Mimir, which is neat. Oh, yeah, you're right. Think about that, did you? Not even think about I was only thinking about Hamlet. And I remember what my original intro name was going to be. I was going to be a member of the Talking Heads. Oh, well. I think uh, Valkaleev is better. Valkaleev is better. But, uh, yeah. Should yeah. we, uh, while you we were talking about Valkyries, we get one cool Valkyrie scene in hey, this. Do y'all know? I'm sure there's like a historic reason for it or I whatever. Know what you're gonna say? Yeah, go the, ahead. Yeah, no, it's like you, the teeth. Yeah, the teeth. why she got yeah. braces? Yeah. So uh, I I saw an interview with Eggers about this. Yeah. They actually found ancient teeth of Vikings where they had, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, filed lines in their yeah. teeth. Wild. They and think, he said it looked cool. They think, they don't know so. exactly why they did, but they think that they would file these lines in their teeth and fill them with colored enamel for aesthetic purposes, but also as like intimidation tactics in battle. When they're baring their teeth at their enemies, they have like these. Let weird, me see your grill. These weird, like, yeah, decorate, gangsta grills. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, ancient gangsta grills. Fucking 
fucking awesome. Um, so the Valkyrie has those uh, in this, but it does. It's only in like one shot, and it does kind of look like braces. I saw that same Robert Eggers interview that you did. And he was like, he's like, yeah, it's not braces. We we went with black, but maybe we should have gone with a different color, you know, because it. It does kind of look like the Valkyrie is wearing braces. But, man, that sequence is so fucking cool, it's so though. Awesome. Well, because, like, the the ravens are the ones who free him. And then we see Odin standing there with a raven perched on each shoulder. Um, and then he's being carried away on horseback by a Valkyrie. And we then learn it's like Anya Taylor-Joy came back for him. But she has the hair of a Valkyrie. That's what Fjolnir says earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, man, that fucking, the, the shot where it's like following the horse and she like rides off the cliff and it like falls and the camera goes down and then she's like galloping across the sky, like into the Aurora. So fucking cool. Gorgeous. So fucking cool. uh, Another great example of great CGI. Yes. Man, I, uh, imagine seeing that shot in IMAX. Like I'm not one for. I'm glad we got to see it in Dolby. Dolby. We saw it like Dolby is the perfect way to see it. It just would also be fun to see that sequence on IMAX because like IMAX is frankly a terrible way to like watch like cinema kino movies because like (laughs) it's it's like. It, 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 you, you can't see it all like at once you know it's like it's surrounding your vision frankly like movies in IMAX uh, good movies in IMAX should be like Transformers movies and shit but I do think this movie would be fucking fun in IMAX that's a misnomer yeah. actually because uh, most IMAX movies are not the they're dome. not the dome, the dome. Yeah. I didn't realize that either because really? where because where we grew up we, all, we had our the dome IMAX, our IMAX was at the Explorium which was the dome we had a science station dome as well in Cedar Rapids but yeah, we when we went to see Ambulance uh, really? at the same theater in IMAX, yeah, it's, it's just, just, it's just an a extra bigger large screen. screen. Yeah. Mm. And, and honestly, it's, it's, it's slightly curved. Yeah, and it's not even that much bigger than the Dolby screen, no. in my opinion. And honestly, the Dolby experience is much better. better. Because oh, in every way. The better sound, and also the, the, the IMAX theater has those uncomfortable-ass seats. The yeah. Dolby's got the comfy yeah. seats. Yeah. True that, true um, that. So. This is uninteresting for the listeners. I'm, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> yeah, I'm just glad we saw it that last night in Dolby. Um, yeah, nice. same. Before they put uh, mm. the secrets well, of going back to it in Dolby, with that beautiful surround sound came uh, out of the spiritual sequences. I think exclusively the only use of like modern instruments with with electronica. There's some ambient scoring, mm. um, and it's it's only in those those sequences when she's when she's ascend like in the like on the last shots of the movie when she's ascending through the gate like to the, the rain like what would assumably be like the rainbow bridge um, yeah, yeah into Valhalla um like you hear like celestial ambience um you know which is mm-hmm. done on synthesizers and it's only in those surreal dreamlike sequences where much like the visual CG digital music is being used whereas the rest of the film it's largely analog with wolf sounds or just people Man, chanting and singing score, which is super cool the it's score so is incredible really robert eggers always has great scores mm-hmm. but goddamn, this is like a next level yeah the music is so good the sound design is also great i mean especially in dolby where you know you can feel it all around you you've got the but, full stereo um, sound one yeah. one interesting article that i saw on the score is they never found any evidence of percussion or drums in viking culture 
yet they use it predominantly in the score of this. And I think it works so well, even though it's maybe not historically accurate. It's that yeah. feeling of historical well, there's, accuracy there's lots that of, pulls it through. There's lots of instances of like warriors in this movie banging spears yeah. and swords on their shields. Exactly. Which it's is percussive. percussive. And, you know, maybe if like Viking, I have a hard time believing that Viking cultures didn't have any kind of like hide drums or anything right. like that. But even if not, there's no fucking way that during festivals and like singing and music that warriors weren't fucking banging their shields exactly like and it works so well for the tension and the drive of a lot of these sequences lots of uh lots of throat singing some some uh some tastefully used hurdy-gurdy um they hurdied the gurdy all right yeah man this this score is uh is next level so one thing to to consider also is why a lot of this culture was lost because it's not a big theme in the film it's always sort of creeping in from the outlines and something i i really wanted to make a note of talking about on on this podcast and that is um the the dawn of christianity and the rise of christianity like through these lands and how a lot of these um a lot of this ancient history was lost because of it was destroyed destroyed by, by the christians by the invading christians. and yeah. there was only a couple of slight nods to it clearly like they've been invading christian lands so they come back with some christian some of the slaves are christian yeah um yeah. i believe the the artifact that is given to amleth at the beginning is christian like his father is possibly like raiding a christian settlement um it's hard to say but uh he gives him like the, a medallion a medallion of some kind neck, yeah. um and also uh very notably, the uh, the slaves, half of which are sent to Fjolnir, the other half are sent to Constantinople, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, a, a big note because that was like, that's like our core historical city of like, oh, yeah. that, that represents to the change to, to Christianity. Um, and my favorite bit of dialogue in the movie is when they're beset by Amleth and they think he's some knight specter. He's killed. And he kills a couple of the warriors years. and like cuts them up and like arranged and like nails their body parts to like a wall in like a grotesque fashion. In a grotesque fashion, like resembling a horse, mm-hmm. which which is really fucked up and horrifying. Like, uh, what a practical too. You get some really close up shots of it, and it's, I it, it's, if it's uh, really gritty realism. I wouldn't be surprised if it's supposed to be uh, sleep near Odin's eight legged horse. Yeah, because Emily. Yo, is a I didn't even think Odin. about that. That's yeah. really cool. Yeah. Holy shit! But to but to, your, your to point, that point is, is that his, he's questioning his half brother Thorir, Fjolnir's oldest son blames the christian slaves for doing this because their god is a corpse nailed, nailed to, to a, a tree, tree which yeah. is fucking awesome i that's such a cool like external way of like looking back at christianity is like yeah their yeah. god is a corpse nailed to a tree and i just think it's, it's funny that it's they cool call, because that he calls them he calls them christian heathens as well yeah so rad because especially like post the widespread of christianity any sort of paganism is considered heathen. heathenism yeah. heathen, right? i'm not heathen you're heathen yeah. um but <laughs> but uh what's also cool about that is is no their god is a corpse nailed to a tree and if you had to summarize Amleth 
he's a corpse nailed to a tree. Like he's, he is a dead man walking nailed to his family lineage, like nailed to his tree. Like, well, and I, and also, I, I really like that. I, I think that's a cool way to look at there's it. There's also you know? the, there's also the legend of how Odin gained, uh, infinite knowledge from, 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 well, from hanging himself from Yggdrasil, right. from the tree of knowledge, from being hung for like, from like, I want to say nine days and nine nights. Mm. He was, he died and hung from the tree of knowledge. And then when he came back to life, he had omniscience. Yeah. So, so. he still needed to know about the bitches. So he caught off Mimir's head. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, learn more about women. Um, which I like, because that also comes into play with Willem Dafoe's character. I really like that because Willem Dafoe is the one who has the knowledge of women. Which is another like like reference to him sort of being like a uh, a pseudo Mimir figure, um, and like what what's his first line like when when uh, Ethan Hawke returns home, uh, the uncle comes out and he says something, and then Willem Dafoe makes a body joke about the queen fucking anybody. Well, she offers Fjolnir her drinking horn, and he says, "See how the queen's cup becomes wet for a man other than her king." king. Yeah. Yeah, which is funny because she he was, has that knowledge of women. She was, but also she was fucking Fjolnir. Yeah, he was right. <laughs> he was Be, right. Right. He was right. He has that knowledge, you know, and like that his knowledge. Like, and that's what's well, that's, and what that's I like. why I think that's why Fjolnir reacts so aggressively too. Yeah, mm-hmm. when he's like silence, dog. Yeah, and and Ethan Hawke is like, nah, he's got a he's got he's a body fool. mouth, but he's my boy. He's yeah. just a jester. He's just a jester. Yeah, yeah. and I uh, yeah, I really like that. Uh, I hadn't thought about that until like just now, but like. Yeah, that's just another way like he sort of paralleled with Mimir. The well of knowledge. Let's no. talk about that incredible volcano fight sequence. Yeah. Holy it's, fuck. It's about time. Yeah, there's a volcano fight sequence in this movie, y'all. Well, yeah. So, you know, of course, the the prophecy says that Emleth will take <sighs> his vengeance uh, at the gates of hell, you know, and drown his enemy in, the, in a lake of fire. So after he has killed his mother and Fjolnir's son and basically taken everything from him, Fjolnir comes in and says, you know, meet me at the gates of hell. There's a volcano on the island. We see it erupting a few times. Emleth goes to meet Fjolnir in battle at the gates of hell. It's the only time he's able to draw his blade in the daytime. Only one L in hell. Yes, um, in the true Nordic fashion, H-E-L. But holy shit, that fucking fight scene in the volcano is... The coolest. It's incredible. So good. It's so well shot. I saw that they, the studio made him, uh, made Robert Eggers CG out Emleth uh, uh, and Fjolnir's penises, though. Oh. Because they're, fight, they're fighting naked. naked. Yeah. Um, and, and so the studio said, no, no. Even though this is an R-rated movie, no schlongs. Yep. You got to CG those out. And Robert Eggers was giving an interview saying that he wanted he wanted their their dicks to be in that scene. Kind of homophobic. Yeah, honestly, honestly yeah. kind of homophobic on behalf of the studio. Yeah, yeah, yeah dudes rock. We got to get those cocks out. Yeah. And like, I mean, like, what is what is uh, what is more masculine than two men fighting naked inside of a volcano? Yep. Yeah. That's Nothing. Right. And yeah, that's that's a shame. Well, he'll release the penis cut. 
<laughs> you know, I I I think uh, I think I give it I give it a couple of years, give it a few years. We, we're I gonna think, get an, a I think right, we'll see a Robert Eggers a director's cut director's cut of the Northmen because I heard they also made him cut down the prologue quite a bit. Um, uh, which I, means there's got to be more Ethan Hawke. I heard, I heard, stuff, that, so I heard cool. that we lost about thirty minutes of this movie. I can see this cuts. movie being about three hours long in its full form. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, given the and opportunity to take intermissions, to, and would yeah. be happy to see it. Same, same. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's this kind of film is so immersive, um, yeah. and like so much comes with that. I uh, and again, the, that's what intermissions are for. Yep. Um, I think that the like the the recent the Batman movie is a lot more tolerable. Like if you like pause and can get up because yeah, like it's bro. a fucking superhero movie i don't um, care but like this movie let it be three hours long fucking awesome i'm here for it yeah but- and i will say this movie doesn't really feel its length in my opinion like it is deliberately played i felt like there's there was some but- stuff that was like quickly paced and like yeah. i would have liked to sit yeah. for a little bit longer I, and appreciate I, the film i genuinely felt like i could feel the studio's cuts especially yeah. in yeah. like i'd say in like the first 30 minutes of the film like the pace of that feels faster than what i would expect from robert eggers and like yeah. it still works mm-hmm. but i do you know especially reading that he had to make a lot of cuts especially to the first part of the film like i think you can definitely feel that yeah um but yeah that fucking volcano fight scene is so incredible most of it's done in silhouette i love how it's shot in silhouette because i feel like it's so readable every you know you know impact that happens it's so understandable the choreography is really clear and easy to track which is great because it's it's well choreographed right yeah which is the opposite of how like a lot of films do it like they have to incorporate like a shaky camera or you know like fuck with the lighting or put a bunch of lasers and things in there to to hide the fact that the choreography isn't very good i've seen some clips of fight scenes from the latest marvel spider-man movie and i swear to god these fucking marvel goons do not know how to choreograph fight scenes the fight scenes in all of these marvel movies are fucking terrible yeah. they're so badly choreographed but this is an example of great choreography yes yeah. well yeah. and also because like it's done in long takes set back so like the combat is like the focus like the choreography is the focus yeah, their war culture it has to be i um i think the cool thing about it being in silhouette too i mentioned this to ben after the first time we saw it but it almost feels like uh a shadow puppet show yeah which is you know like a a great historical way of like telling stories is with like these shadow these kinds of shadow puppet shows and it feels sort of like it's reduced to its purest form yeah yeah. now yeah i'll say seeing the story you you know know what reminded me of what's that a much dumber movie but uh there's a few fight sequences in the book of eli that do the same thing that's true that's true (laughs) but the silhouettes you know i'm right in me of episode three Three of of star oh well no but that's the big one like 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 honestly like it was only ever so slightly tainted by that. Ground. I think, like, during the fight scene, like, I, I leaned over to both of y'all, like, separately, and I just went, I hate you! <laughs> you know, like, uh, yeah, because, like, yeah. It's, it's very much that. It 
never have a volcano fight scene without thinking mm-hmm. of that. But, I think uh, uh, one one thing I'll note also, like like obviously, like this is it's an epic moment, and we need to have them like next to a river of lava. Um, obviously, like sorry, I'm in Neil deGrasse Tyson this and take a lot of fun out of it, but like the you know clearly like in reality you cannot be anywhere near that close to lava without combusting. Like really, like if they were to actually have that fight at the gates of hell, they need to do it like on the ridge, and even still, they'd be naked and sweltering. But like uh, their feet were dick. melted. Yeah, suck my dick. Yeah. Fuck that. Yeah, no, no, it needed to be there. whatever they want. Yeah, Please don't change it. Battle, like it's great, yeah. but uh, I mean, it's it's not even a volcano. It's literally the gates of hell, Cleveland. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. they're literally fighting to the death at the gates of hell, and. Uh, well, they kill each other simultaneously. Fjolnir stabs Emleth through the heart at the exact moment that Emleth decapitates Fjolnir. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, it just... Of it's course, not a Fjolnir death experience. He kills him. Oh, no. They they dead. But, of course, you know, Emleth gets the dignity of the slightly slower death so he can have the dying vision of Anya Taylor-Joy safe with their children. Um, and then uh, the Valkyrie descending from Valhalla to to carry him into the gates. Mm-hmm. Um, I like I like that our last reference back to Anya Taylor Joy is in his vision. You know, so yeah. that we don't actually know like what happens to her because, like, in all likelihood, she's you know, like I. She, <laughs> Right. It's hard to say. Well, they're what's well, cool though. They're they're taking her to apparently Amleth has has like family in some kingdom or something who are still rich, and he does give uh, Ralph Ineson his his father's ring, and he says, "Take her here, and they'll give you nine times this worth, worth. when when you get there." So, like, yeah, you know, maybe banking was still, Maybe his family is still there, and they'll take her in. Note. But um, I will say another one of my, like, favorite moments in the movie is after Amleth jumps overboard and swims back to the island and Anya Taylor-Joy, like, summons the wind mm-hmm. to, to carry them away. That shit is dope. It's so yeah. cool. It's awesome. so fucking cool. So cool. So fucking cool. I, uh, yeah, I really like that sequence. I, it, it's perfectly done. Um, but what I do like is that they both get on the boat. They're orchestrating their passage. And they have a bit of a spat, you know, well, and it's re- like it's a spat he, about legend. So he's he like, learns, oh, you're pregnant with you know, my kids. She's pregnant. Uh, it's like, well, I'll I got to never... go. And she's like, no, please don't go. Fuck you. No, I'm going to go. Fuck you. And like, and then he just like dies off the side of the boat. And it kind of reminded me of like, like, this is like the 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 historic like equivalent of like a couple fighting at a Denny's. And it's like the Ralph Ineson's character on the boat is just like, like I was just uh, trying to like ship passage, uh, like, you know, right. I just work here. And like this couple's like fighting on a boat. And then the husband just like leaps off the side and like swims away. And it's like, all right. I guess you know. Like well, yeah, but the then Denny's. if but then after the husband leaves the Denny's, if the wife uh, starts speaking a different language and then like summons uh, a fucking whirlwind that tears down the Denny's. <laughs> I've worked service. Yeah. I've seen it. <laughs> <laughs> what kinds yeah, of crazy her, shit happens? Her uh, her little monologue there is great, and be, I mean it's uh, props to Anya Taylor Joy because like that's one of I'm, most of the movies in English. But, you know, there are a few moments where they do different languages and whatever the archaic Slavic language that is, she nails it perfectly, has this fucking awesome monologue about, you know, carry me safely to these lands and I'll plant 
a a thousand birch trees so your tempests can uh, can rattle the the branches or whatever. She's just trying to plant a thousand trees. You know, in a lot of ways, she's a lot like Mr. Beast. <laughs> Oh no. No. <laughs> no. No. No, of course not. No. Fuck no. Um on, sort of on the subject of like the language and stuff, it's not necessarily language related. But one thing I really appreciated about this movie is that uh Hollywood certainly has a tendency for uh any sort of like fantasy movies or you know, big movies that are set in Europe or different cultures to just give all of the actors British accents if they're speaking English, Mm -hmm. because, you know, there has to be some effort to make it not American, but not alienating enough to make it other or whatever. But everybody in this movie does, like, great Nordic, Slavic, Scandinavian accents. You know, I'm not going to lie. Ethan Hawke's a great actor, but even still, when I saw him, like, first approach, I was like, oh, I didn't realize that Ethan Hawke was the dad. I was like, oh, God, is he going to do a Scandinavian accent? And then he did, and it was great. And it was good. Yeah. It, was, it, was, it. it was awesome. Nailed it. Like, even, yeah. Like, and I was I was really, like, pleasantly surprised. And I, I shouldn't have been. Like, he's... I've ever seen him in a bad role. Like, um, I mean... But, like, the, the, little, the little kid, too, uh, who plays young Amleth, does a very convincing, like, Scandinavian accent. I feel like I've like, seen that kid in another movie, too. I was trying to figure it out. Yeah, you did. He's young Bruce Wayne in the new Batman movie. Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh recently, yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, recently, of course, Ethan Hawke is also the... <laughs> he's the villain in Moon Knight. <laughs> oh, really? I oh, didn't boy. even realize. Um, yeah, he really has glass in his feet in his shoes, and it, it's okay. <laughs> well, dumb, um, dumb things. Before we rate, I think there's two things that I wanted to discuss After briefly. You, I think I've covered all my stuff. One was the discourse. The discourse. Oh, we, yeah. we have to talk about the discourse. I think yeah, because, I think we should mention it at least. Um, yeah, we do. I guess. I want to say, and I want to emphasize, while this movie in itself is not problematic. This movie is not uh, an alt-right movie by any means. No. There are definitely going to be alt-right people that are a little too into this movie, sure. if you know what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, 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 I just want to emphasize... That does not make the movie in itself. No, alt-right. no more than fucking Mad Men being sexist, right? Like you yeah. get like so when Mad Mad Men is always my favorite example of this because um, when Mad Men like first blew up and people were throwing Mad Men parties and stuff, there was a lot of talk about like guys who were going around like cosplaying Don Draper and missing the point. Yeah, and I personally spoke with people and like it was like a, a media thing as well that like the problem was on Mad Men for doing that. And I always fucking hated that because like Mad Men makes it extremely clear that Don Draper is not a good guy. You know, that like Don Draper is troubled and problematic and has a lot of things that he's trying to work through and um, that like he's not really a guy to be cosplayed. And uh, especially in the ways that he was being by a lot of these like like a lot of like bro dudes and stuff. And uh, I see the same thing in this movie. Where, like, people disappoint. It's like, well, well, the film is not, like, quote, problematic in my eyes at all. It features a lot of problematic content. Well, we, we live, and also... If that we, makes sense. We Our live, subject matter, I guess. Yeah, we, you know. we, live, we live in a day and age where there is a... Well, not only is there hypersensitivity, but there is 
a uh, a sort of resurgence of uh, like far right extremism and neo Nazism in uh, you know all through Western yes. and and non Western cultures and like fucking losers do the Nazis loved appropriating uh, things from other cultures that they found cool they appropriate a lot of Roman shit a lot of Viking like Nordic shit mm-hmm. and. And that, and of course, like modern neo-Nazi groups continue to do the same thing. So with like with fascism in general comes a sense of collectivism, right? And, and what is an, like, what is a prominent aspect of social collectivism, but fashion and, you know, so like, hence like the Hugo Boss jackboots and all the rest of it. And like, it's. It is. It will always influence popular media in some capacity because, like, at the end of the day, the hard, shitty truth is that a lot of that fashion just looks really fucking cool, which is a big problem. And like, um, uh, but like, it's one that like I've, I've certainly made peace with. Uh, uh, my my favorite like recent example is holy shit, there were so many shots in the new Batman movie where they feature his fucking bat jack boots, you know, and like he looks fashy as shit in that film. And it and frankly. Batman is kind of fashy. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he's a, he's a dystopian, like he's an authoritarian, authoritarian, figure, like sure. police state hero for but sure. I think, but like it, it, like the 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 unfortunate reality is that like the politics, vile, the aesthetic, it looks cool. People like it. People respond to well, it for I a reason. Think, I think what's because collectivism. I think what's important too, especially when it comes to something like the Northmen, is that it is absolutely valid to discuss and critique the politics of a piece of art. Yes. But I do not think it is valid to critique the politics of people who like a work of art. Yes. You know what I mean? And and that I mean, it's like, there are always going to be shitty people who like some of the same things that you do. But that doesn't... Like, the fact that some neo-Nazi assholes might get fucking hard for the Northmen because it's, you know, a bunch of white, buff white dudes slinging swords at each other does not mean that the art in and of itself expresses any of those well, kind of... Yeah, and I mean, this, this, is, a clear, this is a clear example of separating the art from the artist, too. Because, like, I think... There are some elements of that in the film, but, like, that doesn't mean Robert Eggers is fashy by any means. Well, the Fuck film, no. the film is not fashy, and I don't even think this is a case where you have to separate the art from the artist, because no. Eggers himself is on record, as you even mentioned earlier in mm-hmm. the podcast, Ben, being like, mm, I don't know if I necessarily want to make a historical Viking thing because of the co-opting of a lot of this symbolism by far-right movements. Like, Eggers himself yeah. is opposed to that and is saying that, like, the movie does not espouse that kind of politics at all. And I don't know how an intelligent person can watch this movie and think that the movie does does have those kind of no, politics i like i think i think it's it's a matter of i think a lot of these takes are people like watching the trailer and stopping there yes i also i also think well, that like, there's here's here's my 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 little piece on this too i'm going to take it a step further and say that we need to have media like this because um uh that 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 shows us these these times in history and like these 
aspects because first off, they were real and they happened. And you need to fucking grow up and recognize that, you know, like like we need we need to recognize that like these cultures by doing like the Assassin's Creed cosplay thing and like like making them out to be like more moral than they were or whatever else like that is is a disservice to 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 reality in that we need to recognize like these these people in these times in history for what they were because these things can always happen again and you also frankly know thy fucking enemy and like you yeah. to to understand like what cultural aspects you know like are indicative of patriarchy are indicative of slavery come from understanding it and like this movie is 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 perfect for that it's such a wonderful like opportunity to see uh, just to get a glimpse into why people like that at that time you know and to to better recognize how to keep that shit from happening again also and i just yeah so like like as as someone who like is is very gladly to say like i'm i'm progressive like uh and and queer, you know, and like all the rest of it. Like I revel in this stuff because like it's important to understand where this shit comes from. Also, so you can from, stop it from a cultural perspective. I think that it's important to not just roll over and let fucking Nazis take this kind of shit yeah. from the yes. rest of us. Yeah. God, That's yes. The thing is like the fact that there is any discourse around the quote unquote politics of this movie is fucking insane to me to begin with. And that just goes to show the fact that we're letting people see Nordic runes and be like, Oh, that's fascist. Just because a lot of fucking Nazis have tried to co-opt that kind of symbolism. I say, don't let them fucking have it. Yeah. I agree. I think frankly, it's indicative of a brain rot of all of society on both sides of all art must be political. Like the concept of all art being political is not correct. No. No, like inherently like, this film is not necessarily political in a contemporary standard. No. Like, it may be historical, sure. Like, it may be indicative of historical politics, but it's not indicative of contemporary politics. Nor and should it be. To, no. To frame it as being specifically right or left is doing it a disservice it's idiocy frankly yeah or like that like that woman totally on, missing like that the point. woman on yeah. twitter who tried to all to to be like ooh, a movie about vikings that uses nordic runes and robert eggers has that haircut this is sending fash you know like that let's is, just like yeah, I, I do want to say like let's just remember that fortunately it's a person on twitter yeah it's like not. it's it's frankly largely like it's not real life. Twitter, it's not real life. Yeah, Twitter. But, Twitter is largely composed of vocal minorities. But um, these people do exist. In real small life. groups of yeah. people who are, you know, like vocal and have little standing. Well, of course they and they've always existed. You yeah. know, like you, dumb dumb takes are also a part of history. Yeah, for and sure. like it's so, I'm not. Now, it's easier now than ever for people's dumb takes. Mm-hmm. To spread to more people and to infect more people. It is. I and, think, and f- the fact, and I think that a big part of the reason why. It, 
it's only one part of the problem, but a big part of the reason why this film has not been doing super well box office wise, I think there is it, it does have something to do with some of that discourse. That's a variety put out an article that article about how this is like a male power violence fantasy. This is like, actually a great segue. I wanted to do a bit of a postmortem, right? Because this movie seventy to ninety million dollar epic unfortunately has not done super well at the box office opening weekend not to spoil our predictions 12 million dollars oof not great hurts yeah why do you think it underperforms I think, so much i think there's a there's a myriad of reasons i think uh, uh everything we just referenced is a small part um has a small part to play for sure i i also do think that like as phenomenal as this film is um something that we have we've praised this film for a lot is also deeply at the root of it which is that the protagonist is not inherently good but the cultural climate right now absolutely clamors for ethically black and white characters right. in movies and, and it's i think that is to, to the degree that. that like even the movies that should be about anti-heroes even for comic books even for fucking comic books like venom and morbius and all that other bullshit like even those films are pushing to turn these villains into protagonists because your average viewer like doesn't want to like I just say can't, but doesn't want to break. They don't want to experience the perspective of of a of a protagonist that is not pure and just. Yep. Like yeah. your average person, respectfully, like wants to like respectfully, respectfully, um, wants to watch a movie where they can role play as the hero, where they can feel good coming out the yeah. other. Or the, they other can feel end. good about it coming out the other side. And and this movie does not does not serve to that. That is one part of like the sort mm-hmm. of pervasive but cultural. It, it sells it, and this movie does sell itself as something where you will. Even Hamlet, Hamlet, Hamlet paints Hamlet, Hamlet as Hamlet, the good guy. He's yeah. the good guy. He's the good yeah. guy. So yeah. like 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 in this film, and this film is largely selling itself on the same principles of like I'm gonna get my vengeance. That's that's the whole trailer, right? Yeah. I'm gonna get my vengeance, and and so like it's like yeah, he's the good guy. He's gonna get revenge, and like well, by the end of this but film, that's, but that's the, the thing. Guys. Like the I don't think people know that until after they've seen the movie from the marketing they see clear you know historical epic gladiator-esque yeah i think there's a few things that played into uh why this movie didn't do so well obviously first like it's a historical action movie based on something that isn't clearly existing ip you know, Amleth and Hamlet yeah. is existing IP, but it's not clearly that in its marketing. It's the right. Northman. It's something new that people don't know. It's not called it's, Hamlet. You know, yeah. the fact that it's over, it's almost two and a half hours probably plays against it in some respects. Only in the respect that it is the type of movie that it is. I don't think the length in and of itself turns people away because people will sit through any Marvel or Star Wars movie for almost three hours because they all are these days. But existing IP. But that's the, the combo. thing. It's, it's the combination. I think that there is there is this there is a pervasive cultural rot 
in terms of what people want and expect to see in the cinema. I think theatrically, yeah, it's, to some it's degree, a, I think that rod has like always been there. But I do, I do agree. Like, I, just, at, like, I, I, I disagree. I think, I think that it's what, what was the concert that had the riots? Like, I, I, I kind of Astro World. No, no. Um, oh, the old yeah. uh, the Woodstock right '99. Right of Spring. Oh, right. Of, oh, okay. But that no, you know, that's like yeah. But that was something. That was a. That was a, a, a work of art that was truly transgressive, and I don't think that that something like this is that transgressive. I think it's that the culture of what people expect to see and want to see in the cinema no longer caters to this type of movie. I saw somebody on Twitter compare this to Gladiator, which is a movie that came out in 2000, I believe, 2001, and which is also a historical epic action film that did it incredibly well it did super well at the box office it was nominated for all kinds of awards it was starring well-known actors and i think that the northman is the same type of movie that Gladiator is, and that if it had been released even 10 years ago, it would have a similar reception to a film like Gladiator. I have I think, a, I have I a different you're absolutely right. I think you're absolutely right because I think this is an example of the collapse of monoculture and the tightening of monoculture to big tent poles mm. of existing IPs that were around before the collapse of monoculture. Because, like, when there was an element of TV that everyone watched, a homogenous culture that everyone consumed that was within a smaller boundaries people discovered movies that weren't new IPs or weren't existing IPs like this and would flock around them. You know, you saw a slew of historical epics that did so well in the box office. Things like Braveheart, uh, Kingdom of Heaven, Gladiator, all these different movies that did super well at the box office. And that's because... You know, culture wasn't so spread out. Nowadays, everyone has their own micro culture because of the internet, because of spread out streaming platforms. There's not something that culture as a whole is focused on. And because of that, except the macro culture of Disney properties. Yes. Because those existed before the class. Exactly. Comic books, Star Wars, even in horror movies, we see the type of movies that get a lot of advertising, and it's all remakes or requels or whatever of existing IP. It's grasping onto that monoculture that was. It's not here anymore, and because of that, you know... I I have some slight differing opinions. Um, So, uh, slight... Albeit, I, I think that like the those things do come into play for sure. I mean, like there's there's clear like data based evidence of like how much Disney's fucked cinema. Like like we can you know like we can we can look at that all day, and I agree with those numbers. That said, I think Gladiator is an interesting comparison, um, and I think that when it comes to like scope and how much I enjoyed the movie, I would I would agree with Gladiator first, but I would largely 
I think that there are a lot of other examples, both also in one, one that's made by Ridley Scott as well, um, that that I would I would closer pair this film to. First off, Gladiator also has a very clear protagonist. Uh, and also, uh, Gladiator is, if it is R-rated, it's a soft R. PG-13. It is it's... PG-13? Okay. I, I'd be curious to, to know for sure. But um, I think that Gladi- Gladiator is also like somewhat more accessible for families. Um, who tend to pad box office numbers. Uh, and then also, like, there's just a greater, I think there's a greater accessibility in Gladiator. And also Gladiator does pander to what we, we had mentioned previously, which is, um, like, cultural uh, generalization of westernization. Um, uh, or to put it simply, like, they have British accents. Um, and, and sure. like, it's, it's mean- more accessible in that sense, whereas this film is, like, partially, like, like uh, relying on subtitles. Um, and, like, even then, it's thick accents and a much, much less make, distinguishable culture. It doesn't culture. make that clear in the marketing. Like, this was marketed like yeah. a gladiator. In, mm-hmm. in terms of, like, the trailers that you see for this movie, yeah, I, in terms of, like, what draws people to the theater, I think this is absolutely marketed in a way more accessible way. And it's like, if people get to the theater and see and like wait this isn't what i was expecting like at that point that doesn't affect box office num- that doesn't not affect opening box weekend. office numbers opening weekend like because at that point you already have they've already paid for their seats yeah. gladiator fact, was r just yeah okay, gladiator, gladiator was r there's another movie i really wanted to mention because it also involves vikings and is r-rated and it stars a well-known actor and that's th- the th- <laughs> that's the 13th warrior which i actually just saw the other week for the first time and it's a fun movie. Uh, 13th Warrior is particularly interesting because it is uh, it is an adaptation in many capacities of Beowulf, starring Antonio Banderas of all actors. Uh, but it's about like a Middle Eastern character who is um, uh, who joins a band of Vikings and goes to the Northlands. And uh, it's. Uh, and you know he is the thirteenth warrior or whatever. Um, he's sort of the odd man out because he's not a Viking, but he's in Viking society. In that he he's an inherently good guy, all the rest of it. But the thirteenth warrior is particularly interesting, um, just from a filmmaking perspective, because it was essentially entirely shot twice. It had a massive budget from that, of course, um, uh, where there are lots of studio reworks, and uh, uh, it shows in the film, and also it absolutely flopped. And here we have like a big budget film that is also about Vikings and the rest that uh, absolutely flopped. And it's I don't have all the answers. I'm not I'm not saying I do in bringing up 13th Warrior, but I do think that there are some interesting comparisons there. Now, the Northman uh, was not entirely reshot but there were apparently it did it was sent back to the cutting room a number were, of times there were there were a number of cuts in post production i think the fact that something like the 13th warrior had to be reshot shows a much higher degree of lack of faith from the studio a much shakier foundation that yeah. would that would absolutely translate to how they market and sell the film because they have much less faith, faith. in it. And but I, I, keep in mind too with with that consideration with that that film studio having much less less faith that is in the same culture if anything it's earlier than Gladiator much earlier than Gladiator one year it's earlier that, than Gladiator yeah. it came out in 1999 oh, Gladiator came oh. out in 2000 thousand nicely researched um but the point is so it's okay so it's the same time as gladiator and that culture was still pervasive then so i don't know i I think i think it's interesting um and and also like uh one last thing sorry one last thing and i'll 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 cease my speaking but um that is that ridley scott tried to capture that same lightning in a bottle a second time 
with the Robin Hood film that he did. That was a bomb. Like it did not do well. I didn't enjoy the film. And he tried to do a gritty take on Robin Hood, one of the most iconic IPs. And it fucking flopped. Uh, Y'all might have forgotten about that movie. Again, I think that was pre and post monoculture. Robin Hood came out kind of at the end of monoculture, right? Like monoculture really kind of ended around the end of the 2000s, early 2010s. And that was uh, when this movie came out. And that's part of the reason why I think it bombed. And uh, also, it's a dumb movie. Yeah, it was also not it was great. It so it's not, it's not the best. Ridley, Ridley, Ridley Scott doesn't. But Ridley me. Scott doesn't put out all winners. But I do think what what is uh, an interesting recent comparison is one of the two films Ridley Scott put out last year, which was The Last Duel, mm-hmm. uh, which is another uh, historical period piece based on a true story. Hmm. Um, you know, which we kind of clowned on when we saw the previews. I watched it. Not bad pretty good but ultimately did not do super well in terms of like box office in terms of uh you know like i i don't think it, it didn't really get any nods at award shows or anything like that and i mean jesus christ it, it's a fucking it's a fucking ben affleck and matt damon you know led film directed by ridley scott yeah I, you know it's like that's the kind about of thing, two nights that's the kind of thing that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, everybody would have been yeah. all about, right? Yeah, exactly. But, exactly. Going to see it in but, but the culture, the culture has changed. Yeah. I will the, say the, 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 uh, the culture of theatrical uh, films has changed. In respect to that movie, something that's really funny to me is, uh, you know, a big, a big meme that was going around for it was that Ridley Scott was quoted as saying that like the attendance was poor because kids film, were looking at their the phones. phones. And I asked my dad who is mind you a historian. He's an old boomer historian. And I said, Hey, and he said, Oh yeah, well I watched the last duel. And I said, well, dad, how'd you feel about it and he said i thought it was kind of boring <laughs> and so i'm like yeah it's just really funny i mean it's like I, to me it's like scott oh well whatever just, ridley scott exactly. can say whatever he want he's fucking 90 Rid- he's 90 goddamn years old and he's, he and he's makes, ridley scott he he's always makes, said whatever he wanted yeah, he still makes three goddamn <laughs> films a year like what oh an old boomer blames the lack of success of one of his movies on kids looking at their phones yeah. what a surprise <laughs> right like um, oh yeah. yeah the last thing i wanted to mention about the 13th warrior is it's a john mctiernan movie correct director yeah. of predator and die hard like that's an interesting comparison in that the fact that even back then a director's name alone doesn't always bring in seats you know well i mean that's that's the thing is like if a student ultimately no matter who's involved if the studio loses faith in a movie before they release it it's probably not going to do well yeah. i mean like, marketing is everything marketing is everything and a studio's faith in the the ability of their film to have success whether it does or not can set up a lot of people's expectations and if something like the last warrior had to be basically entirely shot twice that shows that the studio studio didn't have enough faith in it probably didn't market it very well because they expected it to flop and that's one of those things where you kind of create your own reality you expect it to flop so you don't market it so it does flop you know um i haven't seen the movie so i can't speak to its quality that that is its own thing but i do think that 
especially in like the last six or seven years or so it's we've really started to see a turn in like what does well theatrically jesus fucking christ ben and i went to see ambulance a few weeks ago the Mm. new michael bay film a name like michael bay attached to an action film 10 years ago that shit would have sold itself, destroyed the box office. And honestly, an ambulance bombed. Michael Bay's best film. On top of that, like Ambulance is probably is, his it best was great. film. I I don't like Michael Bay, and I loved Ambulance. Yeah, and it was fantastic. And we saw an IMAX, and it did not do well. Regular IMAX, regular as, IMAX. As yeah, not not the dome, <laughs> not the dome. Um, but it's like the the fact that in 2022 a Michael Bay action film bombs at the box office, I think is way more indicative of the box office culture than a film like Northman bombing, which is like, okay, sure. It's a period. It's a historically accurate Viking epic made by a director who is like an indie art house horror darling. Like, okay, that's not necessarily setting up for like big box office success. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the fact that something like ambulance bombs at the box office is like, man, people are not going to see movies unless it's got Spider-Man in it. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, that's fucking depressing. It is depressing. Which is funny because, in, the death of Kino. Oh my God! Mm. Um, alas, uh, alas, poor Kino. Alas, poor Kino. <laughs> I knew him well. The uh, yeah, which is funny to me too, because on the exact same flip, the most successful video game this year that's been dunking on all the rest is a weird, technically proficient, historically researched, strange, mechanically complex video game, Elden Ring. Yeah, I mean it's very Norse inspired. For sure. And yeah. The, the the landscape of video games, the landscape of films is quite different. I don't know if it's if it's quite a fair comparison because well, it's, when it, it's because video like, games it's tailored very specifically to like niche audiences. You bring it into your home, you buy the game, you play it at your house, you're not going to see a movie in the cinema. Yeah. Like it's but also movies it's a are different way interaction. To see. And also yes. like uh, I mean, of course, like video games have have supplanted have supplanted films since like 20, yeah. 2006 or two thousand sixteen for for a number of years now. Like video games have dominated, but also you know, like also like FromSoft is while not an enormous studio, uh, they do have years and legacy. They have years yeah. of legacy and many games of extremely goodwill with a quite large audience. Yes. And I guess it's largely grown niche or otherwise mm-hmm. so is it time to it to yes. rate the northman yeah. we've had a very long conversation on it yes um good one too i mean the same as all other robert eggers films like he made another perfect film he did it congregation he done it five out of five five for me too yeah easy five Golden yeah. Pie. <laughs> easy five i mean no surprise yeah and now no and surprise. now we'll ride on t- uh ride past the celestial gates into the into valhalla yeah gold uh, with, with the other golden pods yeah the the valhalla the golden halls of Podhalla. i will say we predicted Pod-hala this one is good. Mm-hmm. that that, that yeah, yeah, yeah i think we got to remember that for the future Pod-hala <laughs> is pod Podhalla pod pod is where the golden pods dwell <laughs> excellent <laughs> Um, we did predict this one. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I'll start with Rotten Tomatoes. I predicted this would get a 92. 
uh, TC predicted 90, and Cleve, you predicted 88. Oh, shit. This right one, now? I, I, I saw, oh, man, I kind of saw this shit coming, didn't I? Right now, it's yeah. sitting at 89. Yo! So, so that's directly... Yep. Oh, shit. We both get it. Yeah. Even Tease, both tie. Wow, look at us. One away. Yeah. Um, I was one over, you were one under. Incredible. Yeah, between as us, for, we have the right number. As for collective rating, I hedged my bets and said four and a half. And both of you said five. So you both yeah. get Yay! another point on Dudes that rock, one. high five. Dudes rock. <laughs> Hell yeah, we uh, did it. Finally, box office. Uh, this is the tiebreaker. Mm. Tease and I both predicted 18 million. <gasps> and Cleve, you predicted 50 million. I wish. Right now it's 12.3 mm. opening weekend. Damn. Oh man, so I, wish, I wish Cleveland won that one. Me too. But, yeah, uh, I mean, again too, as I've said many times, when we, when we wrote these predictions, I was going for international, yeah. which we don't I, do. So I, wanted sad- I still would have lost, even with international. Yeah, sadly, <laughs> um, it's sitting at six points for me and eight points for both of you. I have a question. Sure. I, uh, a curiosity, um, I don't think it would, but how did this movie do internationally in the box office? Um, it's funny you ask that. It's not doing great either. You know, it's yeah. interesting in Scandinavia, they're not really jumping at the bit for it because on one hand, they're saying problematic, you know, yeah. depictions of their people raping and pillaging. On the other hand, it's like... Y'all did that, though! It's what are like, y'all talking about? Y'all did that, though! Yeah. On the other hand, the Every right is did, like yeah. uh, too woke... You know, <laughs> with with the women. Two woke women know how to do magic. Yeah. <laughs> um. So. Oh well. Damn, man. I'm gonna be curious to see what Robert Eggers does next. Yeah. Since Nosferatu got shelved, I'm sure whatever it is is gonna be great. I'm sure that he's not gonna stop. I'm glad that this movie exists. I don't think we'll ever see anything of its like in terms of scale from robert eggers again um and i will say even though this film bombed i think this does a lot of good for the quote-unquote robert eggers brand yeah. to the point where i don't think he'll have trouble making more movies no eight dude a24 a24 is always gonna is always gonna distribute his yeah. shit this is the first he's he's, he's one of their like uh, like big money makers to begin with this and this is not an a24 film this is a bigger studio this was focus features yeah. oh shit I don't know. um this is I robert assumed this was this an a24 is, this is robert eggers first non a24 it's too big it's too big scale for a24 yeah. um but uh yeah, I mean, even if this doesn't do well, which it hasn't, like, he'll always have a home at A24. Like, The Witch and The Lighthouse are both, like, huge indie horror darlings. Yeah. They're immensely popular within the culture. Like, he'll be fine. He'll yeah. be fine. Um, I just hope Nosferatu happens eventually. Yeah, agreed. Next week is your pick, Ben. Yes. Uh, so I wanted to do a little bit of uh counter programming uh northman is a very serious historical epic very much so. um so i wanted to do something a little campier next week and that's why i'm picking nightmare on elm street part two hell yeah uh, i've never seen it the accidentally homoerotic sequel to Sweet. the classic slasher Nightmare on Elm Street. Dudes rock. I'm stoked. Dudes rock. 
I've never seen that one. I love it, and I think it's hilarious, and I'm super excited to talk about it. Sponsor time. All right, let's make it quick. We'll do it quick. All right. Yeah. Speaking of, yeah, if only there was an executive to edit down our runtime. Here we go. All right. Um, uh, this, this episode is brought to you by a real handsome guy. That's right, folks. He handsome. Alexander Skarsgård. He ham. He handsome. He handsome. He's not hamming it up, but he's a ham boy. But he's handsome. What does that mean? I leave that to your own personal interpretation. Thank you so much, Sponsor Shelf, for giving us another delightful sponsor this week. Well, thank you, dear listener, for listening. If you like and appreciate the show, why don't you leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts? That would be cool. Do you can it. Also- you won't. All right, hopefully you will. Hopefully you will, <laughs> but you probably won't statistically. Uh, but you can also become a patron at patreon.com slash podpeoplepod. Statistically, you won't, but maybe you will. Hey, uh, be an anomaly. <laughs> shout out to honorary podboy Sam Simon. Sam, we love and appreciate you. You're probably one of the only people who has listened this far into this extremely long episode of the podcast. So shout out to you. We love uh, you. Yeah. Follow us on Twitter at pod people pod on twitter um and at letterboxd.com slash pod people pod where you'll find a list of all the films we've talked about on the show with our average ratings and links to those episodes you can follow me on twitter at some spooky snake i'm on twitter at mr sheets and i'm occasionally tuning for light arc studios we put our progress on it stairs back behind the scenes or in front of the in front of the scenes, things have been a little <laughs> slow lately, but behind the scenes, things are cooking. Things are happening. Yes. It's going to be a long time, but uh, we are we are making this game, I swear to God. It's um, happening. It's yes. happening. Uh, and then, uh, uh, of course, you can find my work via DreadXP as well, doing cool cover art and concept art and in-game 2D art as well for all of, uh, or many of their phenomenal games. Um, just go to DreadXP.com to see more incredible work. And of course, you can find my work on ArtStation as well under Cleveland Mosier, though I have not updated in like a year and a half because I am very busy painting. So, uh, yeah, go just go look at DreadXP stuff for, for some of the cool stuff I'm painting right now. And uh, that's it for me. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us. And until next time, we will see you in Valhalla. Bye.